You are about to listen to the full interview with Arlene Strand. Sections of it were originally included in our Hestalen Lights episode. If you haven't listened to the full episode, we recommend you go listen. It'll provide context for this interview. Arlene Strand has spent decades researching the Hestalen Lights. He is the founder and president of Project Hestalen, a research organization aimed at unraveling the mystery. We talked with Arlene about how he first got started with his research, where it is leading today, and some of the prevailing theories for the light's origins. My name is Arlene Strand, and my background is uh, actually uh, lecturing at the University College in Norway, just retired. Uh, Yeah. And uh, uh, my my field of topic at the university is uh, computer science, uh, lecturing students. That has been my main work for many years. We got uh, information from the press. Uh, actually, the newspaper in the early 80s wrote a lot of stories from Hestal because there were so many sightings of strange lights going up there, going on up there. So many people went up there to see it for themselves. I and some friends did also do that. That was back in 1982, in September. I remember the date very well, 25th of September, because uh, I had my first sighting in Hestal on the first tour. I didn't expect to see anything. Maybe if I was lucky, I could see maybe a small light or... But I didn't expect uh, such a bright light hovering above the ground, moving back and forth for more than one and a half hour. And that made a big impression on me. I was excited. I was wondering, what could this be? Because, well, I I am also a scientist. I've been working as a scientist before I started the lecturing. So when you are a scientist, you are curious. And my first thinking, oh, what is this? When it was hovering around, sometimes it sent a spotlight up in the air. And the group of us, we split, we had split in three different uh, locations up in the mountains, different mountains in Hestown, though. And we communicated uh, with the radio. And the one, the group who was very close to it, um, closer than me, they had the opportunity to see it all the time. And they said it was also illuminating or putting spotlights on the ground also, not only up in the air, which I saw, but also on the ground. And it, as it, if it was turning the spotlight on, and then it turned off, and after some minutes, it turned it on again, off, and moved around. So that was very exciting. It was just a strange phenomena. Of course, everyone at that time in a different newspaper and so called it a UFO. That was the common word in the beginning. 
Uh, and uh, but I didn't have any expectation of seeing any flying object or anything like that. Uh, I was most prepared on uh, some lights, and these lights behave very strange in the way that the, the fir my first sighting, you can imagine, very strong. And uh, if you can imagine, uh, you see a car light pointing direct to your uh, position. That's that's uh, strong. So yeah. Uh, so after that, when did you start uh, Project Hestalen? Well, we all went back home after this uh, tour to Hestalen, weekend tour, and uh, everyone was discussing. Why doesn't that university do some research or why doesn't that uh, research facility do anything? And uh, everyone, many people talked about that. So I and some friends, we gathered at the cottage, uh, I think uh, more than well, close, to, close to one year afterwards in the summer of 83. My first sighting was in September 82. So in June 83, we gathered and discussed what could be done with this. We discussed also the fact that no one did do anything. No research facility did do anything. So then we decided, well, let's try ourselves. We this, this started Project Heston and the work was gone on going. Why wouldn't other facilities take on the research? And what would you say is the mission statement of Project Hestalen? No one or no research facility did take the the step of doing research. I don't know. Some will claim that it's very difficult to start research on something you never know if happened or when it will happen. But at that time, uh, the chance to see something and do proper research was quite good. So I don't buy their their uh, statement. It could also be that, uh, of course, when you're doing research, you need funding and uh, you have to get the necessary funding for doing that. So uh, that's also a process. So that could also be a reason. A third reason may be that uh, when the phenomenon was called UFO, and if you're a researcher, or scientists, in the beginning of the 80s, you shouldn't involve UFO because then your research career could be destroyed. Let's uh, back up a little bit because it seems like you first saw the lights about a year after um, the press started picking up the stories. Could you tell us a little bit about the first documented uh, sightings of the lights? Well, the, the people living in the valley started to see very much of it in the late 1981, late November or December 1981, 
the stories started to come from the people up there. But we have found uh, stories from before that too. And when we have talked to people, they uh, said, well, I saw something uh, some years ago. Uh, so the first documented report uh, of a light phenomena in Heston is from 1967. So that's actually 14 years before this big sighting started. Do you know what that sighting in 1964 said? Did they uh, describe what they saw at yeah. all? We have uh, managed to let them uh, write down exactly what they saw. And it, they were took, they were not old. It was first tour, they were, were on the cottage alone. I think they were 14, 15 years only. Uh, they were exciting to be alone at the cottage. And uh, they was really frightened because uh, just on the other side of the lake from this cottage, they saw this bright light down below the horizon uh, and it was moving up uh, to, uh, they was moving and I was really frightened. So uh, they uh, actually decided they didn't dare to be in the cottage anymore. So in the middle of the night, they actually decided to walk back home, which was a distance of uh, close to, uh, I would say, 15, 16 kilometers, two small kids. And are there any records of strange lights in the valley before that? Or does that seem to be the first time that the lights appear? It seems to be reports from before that as well. Uh, when we have talked with uh, old people up there, they have told uh, about what they've seen when they was kid. So we have some few stories from the old people telling about some of the sightings. However, it hasn't been so much as it was uh, when it started in 81. But uh, it seems, based on the stories uh, the old people told us, and also there is a local history book covering this uh, place, which write something about uh, a light, but I must take into account it's only, uh, I think it's one or two stories in the local history books, so it's not much. But uh, I think we have to take into account to be written about in our local history books, then it must have been a great sighting. You said that the, the time with the most frequent amount of sightings was uh, 81. Could you tell us kind of what the frequency of the sightings at the time were? And has it changed at all? over the decades. Yeah, the sighting started to increase. It started uh, December 1981. And in the winter of 82, it was uh, very many reports coming in. Based on the reports we got, uh, at the most, it was 20 observations in a week. 
at the most. And if you know that the valley is only, uh, let me see, 10 miles long, so it's a small valley, and with such a big number, I will say, 20 observation a week in such a small valley, that, that's huge. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, this high activity started to uh, decrease in 1984. It uh, continued with a high activity in the winter of 82 and also in 83. And in 84, during the winter of 84, when we had the first field investigation with a lot of people, we got a lot of sightings uh, at that time as well. But uh, later that year, in 1984, the number of observations decreased very drastically. So when we had our second field work in 1985, we got only one good observation during a period of four, of four weeks. But in 1984, when we had a similar uh, fieldwork, the number of observation was in around 50. So, yeah. Do you have um, any explanation or any thought of why uh, the sightings decreased? We don't have any good explanation for why it decreased. Uh, so actually we don't know. We have uh, wondering if it could have something to do with the, with the spots on the, on the, sun, the sun, sun or something. But no, we haven't found that. Uh, I could also mention, I mentioned uh, up to 20 observations a week at the most that uh, we have these lights we have decided to split them in four different types. And, and the first one, which are most common, but we wasn't aware of that type when we started counting, writing reports in the beginning of the 80s. That is flashes of light, normally blue or white. And the time duration is mostly less than a second. So due to the short duration, it's very hard to see it. Um, it's happened too fast. But if you are aware of those, it may be possible to see it. We become aware of those due to the fact that we have seen some lights on pictures we have taken, which uh, we didn't see any light when we, when we took the picture, but uh, we could see it on the picture afterwards. So that was a process of becoming aware of this type one. The type two though is the more common and that's the one we uh, did uh, record the first uh, years and was aware of that's um, more yellow lights mostly. They can be all types of sizes. Uh, biggest one is uh, 10 meters in diameter. Uh, we have measured it to three meters in diameter. Uh, and 
these lights, uh, as I mentioned, can be very strong. It can illuminate the ground beneath it and can move around in the valley for a long period of time. Up to two hours has been uh, noticed, but uh, mostly it uh, around some minutes though, and it can stand still for uh, well even hours and it can move very fast uh, on one occasion we did measure the speed by one of our instruments the radar and the speed of this uh, yellow light was uh, 30,000 kilometers an hour and that was type two. Uh, maybe I should mention the two last uh, types too. Uh, type three, that consists of several lights which seems to be connected in one way or the other. Because when all these different types of light move, they move all together. And it's, they are very not so <laughs> far away from each other. It seems to be on something. So when, when this uh, phenomena is moving, all the lights are moving together. This has also been seen even when it's not completely dark outside. Those who have seen that, they say, well, there's a black object connecting these lights. This has been seen also several times, so that's type uh, 3. The fourth type, which are not so common, it's more seldom, but uh, I think we have to consider them and take them into account when we study them, is uh, more daylight sightings. And it's not always a light which has been seen at that time, even what they call object. And of course, these sightings has been uh, mostly, well, the people see that has been mostly shocked or most surprised and they make the biggest impression when they see such kind of lights. Or, well, I say such kind of lights, it, it isn't always a light, it's always sometimes also an object. What does the uh, object sometimes look like? The, the shape and the form and the object and also the light though it can be very different it has been described as a flying disc which i guess uh, most of the people have seen drawing of or something that has been seen flying disc and is a also cigar shaped uh, oval cigar shaped object has been seen brownish with a yellow or two lights in front moving slowly without any sound at all and you have also many other different uh, descriptions of the phenomena you have one drawing only showing a black uh, thing a jack like, uh, well, they will call it an object. And also, when um, we're going back to the lights again, uh, and uh, which has been seen in the um, when it's daylight outside, it is possible to see lights also when it's uh, light outside. However, it's more difficult to see lights when the sun is up. But many people, or some people, go up there and take picture of the nature in the valley 
because it's a very nice scenery, uh, take beautiful pictures of the nature. And when these, some of these study the pictures afterwards, on some pictures they have found something strange. Sometimes it's ordinary light, but the, the shape of it can be very strange. It's not only a ball of light, but you can imagine if you see some kind of ball of light, but on this ball there's a lot of other things going out from it. So <laughs> it's hard to <laughs> describe, but yeah, that's also what are some of the natural theories uh, about what could be causing the Hestalen lights? The natural theories, uh, well, there are several different descript or proposals, though, of natural theories. One theory, or I would say hypothesis, is not one proposal, it's a natural battery in the valley because you have one elements which are most in one of the valleys that could be elements uh, which can be found in a, in a battery so that's uh, why they call it a natural battery i will say i'm not uh, a really big fan of that explanation because the amount of voltage uh, which uh, make this battery is depending on the elements which are in use. And with the elements which are in the Hestown Valley, you have a copper in one place and you have iron and zinc in one other place. The voltage is only around one volt. And I think that is too little to take, uh, believe this is the theory. Another theory uh, is of course plasma. You know, plasma is uh, light, but when you have a plasma, you normally have a very high temperature as well. And how is it possible to get such a high temperature um, in a Norwegian valley? Maybe also in the winter time, but they, talk about uh, what they call a cold plasma, a plasma which could uh, occur, a plasma type, which could occur uh, with not such a high temperature. But you know, plasma is a fourth type. You have, uh, you have a solid state, um, uh, liquid, gas, and then plasma. So it's a higher temperature. But the cold plasma has been proposed even dusty plasma and different kind of, uh, of plasma. But uh, one thing is uh, where does the energy comes which can make this plasma type? And how can it explain the behavior of the lights, the movement of the lights? And how can the plasma explain spotlight out of this plasma light that's so weird. i don't think any one of these uh, theories or not let me say hepatitis um, natural hepatitis can explain all the side things it's not possible well 
Do you have any hypothesis of why the phenomenon displays such a wide range of behavior? Uh, I don't have any good uh, explanation on that. And that is also one of the reasons why it's uh, become more and more mysterious the more we study it. Because it's uh, very difficult to imagine that, for instance, the type 1, the blue or white flashes, which last less than a second, it's the same as the balls of light uh, hovering above the ground for minutes. Uh, it's very difficult to see any connection with that one. And also if you bring into the type 3 uh, where you have several lights on to what people say is an object, it's hard to believe all these different types has the same answer or same explanation. So, well, that's one of the reasons why we call it the Heston phenomena and not the phenomenon, because there may be a different solution to the different types. At one point, uh, J. Allen Hynek uh, of Project Blue Book came to visit Hestalen. Uh, can you tell us more about that visit and what were his opinions of the phenomena? Yes, we first of all, we was very glad that he arrived to our second field work in, back in 1985. Uh, and he talked very warmly about our project and the, the, what's going on in, in Heston. I think I sent you an interview made of him, so you, actually you can listen to how he explained it himself. Given the light's potential connection to environmental factors, uh, have there been any geological studies in the area in connection with the phenomena? And uh, if so, what did they find? Yes, there has been a geological uh, investigation. We, um, because, well, why Hestal? Why in such a small valley? There must be something in the valley. So it's very close to think of something in the ground. So there has been geophysicists from France and from Greek who has actually walked around taking measurements, a huge part of this valley. And I found some interesting spots, uh, one with high magnetical activity. Um, and uh, they also put up uh, two different uh, measurement stations, which could measure uh, the Earth's magnetic field continuously and also measure the uh, voltage induced in, in them. And based on that, uh, they have said that they have found some places or some uh, down in the ground which conduct electricity very good. So as if you can imagine a big wire, copper wire, whatever, it's, um, it's a dig in the ground. So some places 
the hemp. Uh, so that's that's uh, interesting. Interesting of their measurement. The, the ground can some places conduct uh, electricity very very well, and they have also some places with uh, very high local magnetical um, activity. So so that's interesting. They have even proposed that well they map that there is this high conduct of in the ground uh, can be found in a in a way like a circle around the Heston Valley but how this can make all these lights that's still a mystery yeah because I guess my question just hearing that is how would the magnetic field with the electrical current be interacting would have to be something in the sky correct well, yes, you should expect that there must be there must be something something uh, going on. Also, we have had a seismograph uh, up there to see if there any movement in the Earth's crust. Uh, for instance, when you measure seismic activity, you have such an instrument. Um, but the Heston area is very quiet. But we wanted to have uh, instruments itself up in the valley to see if there are even small movement in the ground which could cause this. But no, there was nothing. There was a quiet zone. So uh, any theories or hypothesis uh, based on that there must be some movement in the, making piezoelectrical light or anything that that doesn't fit what is the environment in the valley particularly when it comes to the air could there be something that's causing um i know in the past uh some light sightings have been attributed to like temperature inversions happening um could anything like that be occurring well, some of the, you know, we have many different descriptions of the lights. And if you pick up only some few of them, that could possibly be an explanation on those. But the problem is, uh, what about all the other? Um, how do the lights compare in terms of... Uh, energy radiation and uh, spectrum analysis with other known light phenomena? Well, we have, when it comes to spectral analyzing, we have luckily managed to take a couple of, or well, three pictures which are good enough for spectral analyzing. And one of these uh, analyzing, one of the pictures though, seems to show uh, what we call a continuous optical spectrum which can come from a solid object and then a big heat though um, but uh, could also take into the, the fact that no one has ever felt any heat from this light at all when they have been close to it 
on one occasion 50 meters and it was 10 meters in diameter and it has been very close to the houses uh, and uh, and even on one occasion it went down to the snow and make a track but no melting of the snow so it seems to be cold all the time but if you study this continuous optical spectrum the first thing you think of is that this must be hot, really hot, sending out this continuous spectrum. Um, but uh, it seems that it isn't hot. Uh, another picture analyzing optical spectrum indicate uh, that uh, there may be the element scandium. It's a rare element which could be seen in in the optical spectrum from the light though. But I could also mention that another thing with the first picture I mentioned with the optical, continuous optical spectrum, it indicates also that the UV part of the light seems to be very high. We couldn't, we didn't have an instrument itself to measure the UV lights but uh, what was uh, made on to the picture it indicate that there is a high part with uv light which is very interesting do you know of any other phenomena in the world that has similar readings or is similar to the Hestalen lights in that respect I know only some few, and actually I've been to some places myself and done measurement, both in Australia and Mexico and in the States. And on my experience on these places, it seems to be the same thing as in Hestown. The same type of descriptions of the light, for instance, in Australia, when we saw the flashing blue or white uh, lights, it's the same thing as in Heston. So for me, uh, it seems to be the same thing all over the world. And you have no explanation for what it is? Uh, no, not yet. Uh, we, we hope to be able to do the proper research or proper instrumentation. We have some indication uh, based on the instruments we already have used. For instance, magnetical uh, activity, uh, when it's high magnetical activity in the atmosphere, it seems that the probability to see the light is higher. We have also measured some other magnetical pulsations and so on, cooperate co uh, some on this. But uh, we would also like to have more of such uh, readings. Another thing which I think is interesting is the fact that uh, some of the participants taking part in the expedition we have organized up there, uh, when they were standing out with their camera ready for taking pictures, they said it was like you stood in a boat out in the ocean, a waving feeling. You, you felt as you were out in the ocean. And the fact that can 
make you feel like that is if the brain or your inner ear is uh, in a part of a very low frequency electromagnetic radiation which is very strong or it can be infrasound at that time we didn't have any instruments for measuring that we have only the the talks from scientists who have studied this so uh, to make it short we would like or actually we in in the process or in the new project test on we want to pick up the instruments we know will give us or have previously anyway given us interesting uh, readings and if you got more of these readings and also can compare with other measurements around the world hopefully we can get a little bit closer to the solution yeah could you tell me about the old project Hestalen um when did it start what did you find when did it end and then the new project Hestalen well we started project Hestalen back in 1983 that's the first one and we had two field works uh, one we started the project in the summer and in the winter we had a, a field work with a lot of instruments a lot of sightings uh, with the did a lot of different uh, measurements, uh, which was very interesting. Well, actually, the people who are interested in all the details can find it on the website uh, uh, heston.org or oldheston.org to be exactly. But the second field work in '85 didn't give so much result on the one great view so we thought it was gone so actually when the project test on was put on ice we don't, didn't have any more activity after 1985 until 1993 when i had the presentation for the local people up there and um, talked for them about our findings uh, some years before and also the growing interest among scientists. After my presentation up in the Hestown Valley, some of the inhabitants up there came up to me and said, well, it still continues. I was surprised because I hadn't hadn't heard anything. And I commented that, oh, I haven't heard anything. And the fellow said, well, we don't tell it anymore because we were so ridiculed uh, the first time. And we don't want that to happen again. But uh, in uh, 1993, I first organized a, a workshop in Heston, uh, collecting uh, scientists uh, on different topics, uh, maybe ball many ball-lighting scientists. It was coming from eight different countries, and we discussed it, the phenomena. And after that, we also start a process of building an automatic station. We uh, didn't organize in, in new expeditions. We wanted to have an automatic station with cameras, computers running all the time. And this one has captured a lot. It was set in operation in 1998. I used my student to build it, so they totally used for uh, 
Yes, and another thing we did, uh, we also started to bring young students up there running small expeditions, which we called science camp. Young students uh, staying in tents up in the mountain for one week with instruments, with cameras ready, just staying up long part of the night and sleeping in the daytime. Of course, uh, 15, 16 years old, but I managed to get some interesting data. That is great. That continued for some years and also we had a cooperation with uh, scientists from Italy, which uh, run what they call the Embla project uh, and reports from their expeditions. So there has been several expeditions. Uh, the one with the scientists from Italy uh, in the, from 2001 to 2005. You have uh, the students, uh, which started in 2002, had been running each year and since then. This ended, in a way, the whole thing of several different reasons. One is, of course, um, the founding. So you always you need to have money for doing this. So and you got COVID and all these together made it. Uh, we, we decided to to not run. It was too difficult. Uh, but it was um, dead in a couple of years. Uh, but quite recently, I think uh, one and a half year ago, or we uh, decided to make Project Teston uh, work again, and we have made it as a non-profit organization with people who are willing to do the science up in the in the blue box <laughs> instrumentation system, get the good instruments uh, into it. So now we are in the process of getting the funding necessary to get the proper instruments. So if anyone want to uh, contribute, that would be great. We have also a Discord uh, group uh, and those who are members will uh, also be able to get the latest results and so on. So we are searching for members on this new nonprofit organization project has done. Well, we're going to make sure to include links to all of that in uh, our show notes. Uh, so our listeners should go look for that. And I know Ray is part of the discourse uh, discord also uh, and has been kind of blown away by all the research you're doing and it's one of the main reasons that we're covering this story uh i did want to back up real fast um about the automatic measuring stations could you describe to us how those worked and any notable findings from there yes we have uh, we have cameras uh, connected to a computer which uh, analyze the pictures from the camera. And uh, if there is any interesting, it store the picture and also a short video uh, sequence of that uh, sighting. That's the main instrument, you can call it, in the uh, blue box. Uh, and uh, that one gives a lot of interesting uh, pictures. Uh, 
It's uh, during a year I have up to 50, 60 a year. Well, at the most also more, a little bit more than 100, uh, which interesting uh, sighting this camera and the video recording has been captured. We have also had some other instruments. We have had an instrument which measured the electromagnetic radiation in a very low frequency, very low frequency radiation. And the reason why we had a focus on that one is based on this waving movement, which could be due to very low frequency radiation. Um, we have didn't measure any very strong radiation which could make such waving movement. However, we can, if you you can listen to the sound from this electromagnetic radiation, if you have a proper device which transform the electromagnetic signals to sound, and we have found that. Uh, this sound of actually noise in a way, it changes. You can hear when this phenomena is coming. So it uh, seems that there is uh, some kind of connection to very low frequency radiation as well. That has been in operation for some period but uh, not so very long. We have also had a weather station running in the blue box, or actually outside the blue box, uh, because we have, well, one of the things we wanted to find out if there is any connection with, uh, for instance, uh, humidity. Based on the flashing, it seems that this is more regular, more easy to see when it's a long humidity. So weather station has also been in operation. Uh, we have also had a magnetometer um, running for a period of time, but uh, it's not in operation now because, well, you know, this is uh, Russia, this environment, the blue box is staying, it's cold winters, it's wet, it's windy. It's, it, the instruments need to be really rough to be able to stand that. The instruments we have used has many of them worked for a period of time and then it doesn't work anymore. So, but uh, the one who has been or in operation very good period of time is the camera with the video and it does capture the phenomena. How has the Oostfeld University helped support the research in Hestalen? Well, uh, Oostfeld University College, which I have been working in, as long as we used um, student in our work, uh, I have used students in building the automatic station, a lot of computers and stuff inside, that's made as long as you have I use students in in the work. Uh, they have been positive. And they have supported. However, not much money. So, but enough to have it running. 
Can you tell me about the collaboration with the um, Italian SETI team that you mentioned? Uh, and what were the results of their research? Yeah, the Italian SETI team, uh, we had a very good cooperation with them. Actually, one of the, it started back in 1994 when I had a field, well, I had a workshop, I mean, sorry, scientists from different countries, and one of those uh, participated. We was invited to Italy the year after 1995 to have a presentation for scientists down there. And uh, in late, uh, just before 2000, I think, well, I think it was 1998, uh, one of the bosses up down there wanted to see it for them himself, went to Hestal when he was up there, and uh, he did see it, and he was hooked of this, of course, and uh, from 2000, I think, or 2001 was the year when he decided to let uh, several of his people go up in Hestal and do research in a period of time. They made reports every year. They had their field work in 2001, 2002, 2003. Uh, and they have made their their uh, reports, which can also be found on this website. It's possible to download and read this uh, technical scientific report. I could mention that these um, Italian, uh, well, their main work is to uh, have uh, instruments for studying the universe. They have a big antenna picking signals from the universe and make their own equipment for doing that. So they're very professional in their their work. So several of the instruments they were using in Heston during the Embla period was uh, instruments they have made themselves because, uh, well, they, they are professional, make their own instruments. So they had the uh, equipment for measuring uh, the radio frequency on electromagnetic radiation in different uh, bands. They had made they have made a radar which could uh, see if uh, this phenomena can be captured on radar, which it does. It has been done. Uh, so that's one of the most interesting research uh, they have done. And also, of course, when they were up here, they had the cameras, etc., and taking took pictures of the phenomenon. What do you think, if it could be picked up on radar, does that mean that there is a physical presence there? There when you study the signals from the radar it's very strong feedback from the antenna as strong as you can expect to get from a solid object but we have taken pictures of the screen showing this strong echo and discussed this with the radar expert because it wasn't always we could see something where the radar told us that there is something. 
of course, the radar managed to capture uh, many of the lights as well, but sometimes it captured something which we didn't see with our eyes. And this was very, very strange. And uh, we managed to take a picture of the screen which show how strong the echo was, how intense. And uh, the radar expert said that uh, the only thing he, he could uh, think of which could give a reflection, such a strong uh, reflection on the radar screen, was a very local, strong, ionized, ionized uh, place. Or uh, actually, for instance, plus and minus, you know, ionized. If that is very strong, uh, then that could give such a strong echo. But, but we could follow it on the screen as if it was an airplane. Do you think St. Elmo's fire could be the same phenomenon or is it different? Well, uh, if you think of all the different descriptions, I could say that some of them could fit with St. Elmo's fire. However, what about all the other? No, it doesn't. What is your relationship with uh, Dr. Massimo uh, Teodrani and his role um, with the research? I know Massimo Teodrani very well because he has been in Hestown doing research for many times. Actually, Massimo was the one uh, who participated in the workshop I mentioned in 1994 and was the man who told about it to his research fellows in Italy. And uh, so he was invited, etc. Uh, he has been the head of the Embla team work in Heston. I think it was 2001, the first, and uh, 2002. So he has been the key person in doing research of the Italian people up here for several times. And now uh, we have continued we have a good relation. I follow his work. He's, he's very, very clever. And I'm very glad that he is now a part of this new Project Heston, this uh, nonprofit organization. He is, uh, he is the head of the research part of that. You just got back from Hestalen and you were doing work there with the new project Hestalen. Could you tell us uh, what you were just doing? Well, the first uh, thing, well, we did several things. Uh, it was last week, in fact. This uh, new project Hestalen team, this, well, first of all, the, this nonprofit organization was made this year in June. So it's quite new. Uh, we have a team of people uh, which has been cooperating on the net. Uh, so this was an opportunity to meet for the first time in, in, in physical, so real face-to-face. -face. So that was uh, very good and uh, important. Some of the people in the team come to Heston to 
to talk with us and, and discuss uh, what we should do. Another thing we was uh, doing is to involve those who are in the technical team more in their blue box instruments inside so they are more uh, before this been mostly me who have been up there doing things but now we have a, a young clever person who is not living that far away he's part of the team he's loving living in Trondheim is about 120 kilometers away from Hestan Valley I have more than 500, so I could go there many times. But anyway, we, we managed to come together, talk, and uh, look at the instruments in the station, and also continue the discussion of what kind of instruments we really need up there. What kind of instruments do you feel that you really need up there? Well, uh, several. Uh, we need better cameras. The quality on the camera, which are taking alarm pictures now, it's not good. It's an old camera. So we need better camera, which can capture more of the details in the lights and the movement, etc. We'd, we'd also have an magnetometer. Actually, we have an magnetometer. We managed to get a magnetometer. Uh, which we are preparing to install in the blue box so people can follow the magnetic activity uh, in correlation with the light uh, sightings from the blue box. So magnetometer is also one important instrument. We are also uh, looking for using the low-frequency electromagnetic detection system as well um, and uh, also uh, i mentioned better cameras um, i think we will manage to get some of it uh, we need more cameras we, we we want not only looking from the blue box which is one place in Heston, where we want the cameras also located on the other uh, places in Heston so it's possible to triangulate etc so that's also some of our plans to find out the real distance to these lights and uh, of course uh, we have a uh, several we have we are discussing these different kind of instruments we want to put in operation and of course the weather station though as simple as that how can the public or enthusiasts get involved or contribute to your ongoing research and this nonprofit? The easiest way is to become a member of Project Teston. So if you go into Project Teston website, you have uh, the possibility to uh, contribute uh, very easily. Uh, by clicking on the bottom, contribute. Uh, and also there you can decide to become a member or if you want to contribute only once. And if you are a member, uh, you've got more uh, of the information uh, which are going on. Uh, I could mention that we are planning a field tool for some of our members who want to take part of it. As I mentioned, the young students did. Uh, we have not uh, made this uh, detailed plan yet, 
But if you become a member, you can hear more of it. And we are talking about September 2024. Just on a personal level, um, do you have any hypothesis of what this could be? Or uh, do you think it's primarily a natural occurrence, man-made one, even extraterrestrial? Well, uh, I've been, I must say, I haven't talked so very much about what my personal thoughts are. I, want to, I don't want to be captured in one theory I may, may have and look at the data which prove or disprove that one. I can say that the more data we get so far, it has been more mysterious than you can imagine. For instance, uh, I mentioned the heat based on the picture, and no one has ever felt the heat. Uh, that's, uh, that's one thing. And if it's you know, invisible, in a way, when your radar sees it, and we cannot see anything. And if you look at uh, some of the reports, or not many though, but some who have seen this in the daytime, the, one of the stories is that during a clear weather, nice summer weather, in fact, he was uh, sitting, resting, and then out from nowhere, suddenly, um, which he explained as an object, suddenly start to be seen out from nowhere so if, if you can imagine you are looking out in the air nice and then suddenly some object slowly start to become clearer and clearer so as it comes from some invisible part and become visible i want to tell one small thing which could be really big because if you think of the power, uh, if you think of the light, which can last for minutes or even hours and eliminate the ground beneath it, there must be some kind of power. And where does this power come from? So that is also one of the questions we want to find an answer on. I mean, the implications around what these lights could be in a million different directions from, um, I know, zero point energy has been thrown out, the plasma, the heat. I, it, I think the work that you're doing is incredible and uh, very important. Um, why do you feel it's so important to study this phenomenon i mean you've been doing it for decades at this point uh so why well first of all i'm curious that's a simple uh, answer but uh, i know that uh, some of the questions we have where does the power come from you know power is always needed in our our living and uh, we take power from places which doesn't necessarily are clean and so on. So if it could lead us to a clean power source, that's one thing. And also we have our nature and I feel 
we know only a part of our nature, but we treat the nature as we know everything about it in it. We do things with our nature, which could have, and we know of several of it, can have dramatically consequences. I think if we know more about all the factors, which is part of our nature, we may be more aware of what we are doing. A special thanks to Massimo Teodorani for allowing us to use his music as the underscore for this episode. You can listen to more of his music under his artist name, Totem Tag, on Bandcamp. A link is in the description. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. It helps get this content in front of more listeners, which means we can produce more episodes more often. Visit our website at www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Terrara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Terrara. Theme music by Tara Monk.